Hi, welcome to Around Town, where we seek to discover insights into places, events, topics, and issues that you want to know about in our great city. I'm your host, Nick Bergfeld, with producer Chuck Luck. Today, we'll be talking with Justin Weaver, the meteorologist in charge for the National Weather Service's Lubbock office. Justin, thanks so much for coming on today. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure. What's your connection to Lubbock? Education and weather. I grew up in Michigan, Flint, Michigan. I've got the bug for weather sometime in the elementary school. Always loved thunderstorms, tornadoes, things like that. I think my father bought me a forecasting kit like in junior high or something. And I just thought it was so cool that you could predict the future. Pursued meteorology is what I always wanted to do, like since seventh grade. Went to Central Michigan University for a bachelor's degree and always wanted to work for the National Weather Service. When I graduated from Central Michigan in 1988, of course, there were no jobs. There was a government hiring freeze. Looking for a place to go to graduate school, and I wanted to go where there was interesting weather, where there were tornadoes. That's how I ended up here in Lubbock. Started at Texas Tech University in 1988, graduate school. Never looked back. Been a great place to live all these years and to have a career. Knowing that you wanted to join the National Weather Service, how did you know that that was something you wanted to do? I just love the weather. This is junior high now, high school. I didn't know anybody that was as into weather as I was. I thought, man, am I strange, you know? <laughs> but once I got to college, I met several people that were just like me, so to speak, as far as interests go. Then graduate school here at Texas Tech was the same way. You kind of think, I didn't know there were so many people interested in weather because growing up, it just wasn't that way. I didn't know anybody else that was interested in weather like I was. What was Lubbock like when you first moved here? I don't think I'd ever been west of Grand Rapids, Michigan when I moved here. I remember being in the car. I had like this 1984 Chevy Cavalier with no air conditioning. Pretty typical in Michigan. Second vehicles didn't have air conditioning. It was the summer of 88. It was very, very hot. I remember that. My father and I helped me move. Of course, I was somewhat familiar with what it was going to look like. I knew the climate and all that. Obviously, much smaller than it is today. I think the population was maybe 165,000, maybe something like that. Now we're approaching 300,000. Much different city back then than it is today. What was your graduate school experience like? Meteorology is a difficult discipline. A lot of people don't realize that. I think because the forecasts aren't always right, people think it must be easy. <laughs> it's, it's a lot of math. It's a lot of physics. It was tough. It's a tough curriculum. One of the best times of my life, I learned so much about weather forecasting and storm chasing and dynamics of severe thunderstorms and tornadoes from the professors, of course, but also from my peers in graduate school. So it was a fantastic experience. It was everything I hoped it would be. Could have been a little easier, but other than that, it was a fantastic experience. It was difficult. What point did you realize you were going to stick around here in Lubbock? There was a gentleman that ran the National Weather Service back then. His name was Andy Anderson. He was kind of in charge of all of West Texas. The Weather Service was structured a little differently back then. One of my classmates in graduate school, had a position at the National Weather Service that Andy had created, a 10-hour-a-week program, and it was designed specifically for graduate students to kind of get a feel for what the Weather Service is like. And then, of course, the Weather Service could get a feel for what the student was like. You know, if they agreed they loved each other, then you get a full-time job in some cases. And so you only worked in that position maybe a year so somebody else could have a chance. So at some point, my friend got picked up full-time. So that job was open and I went down there and talked with Andy and turned out I got that job because I was a pretty decent softball player. Maybe another story altogether. There was a softball team between the graduate students and the 
weather service forecasters at the time. Of course, I was a young guy on that team. Our coach happened to be one of those senior forecasters at the Lubbock Weather Service office. And he told me later that Andy asked him, hey, this Justin Weaver, do you know him? And he was like, oh, yeah, we have to have him. He didn't know if I knew anything about weather or if I could forecast or anything. He just knew I was a pretty decent softball player. That's what life's all about, right? It's those connections. It's those people you know. I got my first job in the weather service because I was a pretty good softball player. I mean, I might have gotten it anyway, but I, you know, I, but I don't know. <laughs> and how did you decide to want to have a family here? That just kind of happened. My job was here. My wife at the time was in graduate school here. She had ended up with a master's degree in accounting and was a CPA as my first wife, a mother of my children. She graduated, got a job, kind of what young people in their 20s tend to do, right? They get married and they start having children. So we were here. I actually did move for a brief period back to Michigan. My first wife and I were both from Michigan. We had two little girls. We decided we wanted to be closer to home, obviously, where our parents were up there. All our families were there. And I lived up there for about three or four years. But honestly, we missed Lubbock. And so when an opportunity was open back here at the Weather Service in Lubbock, I transferred back to Lubbock in late 2001. What was it like for you to raise kids here? It's a great place to raise a family. That's one of the reasons we moved back. When I did move back in 2001, we built a house. One of the things my wife and I both wanted at that time was we wanted a basement. Most homes don't have basements here in Lubbock. Our builder even tried to talk us out of it. He goes, you know, basements are expensive, but I wanted to make sure we had a basement for my children to go because I knew that I wasn't going to be home when there was severe weather. You know, when there's tornadoes moving across the area, my place is at work, right? It's not at home. The National Weather Service, what is it? The National Weather Service is the premier weather forecasting agency in the world. It's a federal government agency. We're under the Department of Commerce, under the executive branch of the federal government, organization known as NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. We're actually one of the original 24-7 operations. The National Weather Service has been doing 24-7 operations since the late 1800s, believe it or not. Here in Lubbock, our office has been open in a 24-7 capacity uh, since right after World War II. What's a typical day for you like? Typical day for me, I'm the administrator, so my day is a little bit different than everybody else that works there. So, you know, I deal with the mundane tasks of running an operation. It's a 24-7 operation, so one of the biggest jobs is scheduling. And actually, I have a person that does that for the office. It's not me, but it's a challenge. We have to have at least two meteorologists there around the clock. And that's the way it's always been since 1946 or so. There's always at least two meteorologists there. My day is standard. I have a standard work day, like most people, I suppose, you know. But the operational forecasters, the folks that do the important work, they work rotating shifts, actually, which is the most difficult part of the job. We have three shifts, 7 to 3, 3 to 11, and then the dreaded 11 to 7. Again, they rotate. Forecasters, the meteorologists, they'll work about a week of day shifts, have a couple days off, maybe three days off, a week of evenings, and then a week of the graveyard shifts. That's the most difficult part of the job. Almost everybody that works there loves the job, loves the weather, but the shift work is difficult, especially as you get older. It gets a little bit more difficult. When I started working there when I was younger, all the older guys were complaining about sleeping and all that. And I just didn't really understand because I was young and I didn't have any problems sleeping. It didn't matter when I worked. But as I got older, I had a family, you know, I saw the issues. And now that I'm an older man and I don't work shifts anymore, but when I do fill in, yeah, I feel the pain. How has the nature of forecasting at the National Weather Service changed over time? It's changed tremendously since I started in 1990. Back in 1990, we had just a couple models of the atmosphere we had a handful of observations once an hour. Forecasting is all about the observations. Quality data in, quality data out. Bad data that goes in, bad data comes out. Back in those days, early 90s, we had 
the whole area of West Texas to forecast for. So the Texas Panhandle, down through the Concho Valley, down to Big Bend, all the way out to El Paso. That was your job that day. Then you had to come in and try to formulate a picture of what you thought was going to happen for the next seven days. We were kind of built around all the media deadlines back in those days. So all that had to be out about four o'clock. So you come in at eight, you had to look at the observations, look at the models. At some point you had to start typing. It all was hand typed back then. And we had all these zones. So if you weren't a fast typist, you were kind of in trouble. Nowadays, we have more models than we can possibly look at. We just got to pick and choose what we think is maybe the most appropriate ones for the day. And in fact, we use more blends now, which are automated blends of all these different models. So we have these model blends now that we use. We have a system where we just draw contours, basically, and the words fall out of that. Basically, paint a picture of what we think is going to happen from a temperature standpoint or a weather standpoint or a cloud cover standpoint. And then we have software that generates all that text we used to type out by hand. So the making of the forecast from the textual part, or you might see in different places, that all is much quicker than it used to be. But the process of making a forecast hasn't changed a whole lot as far as we have models we look at, we decide what we think is most realistic based on our education, our experience, and then go with that and go with that forecast. But what's available to us from an observational standpoint and from a model standpoint, it's more than night and day from what I had in 1990 to today. And we'll be right back with Justin to continue our conversation on Around Town on 89.1. Welcome back to Around Town. We're speaking with Justin Weaver, the meteorologist in charge for the National Weather Service's Lubbock office. I want to come back to the National Weather Service. The National Weather Service is the backbone for meteorology across the United States. How does it accomplish that? What does that look like? The National Weather Service is a pretty small federal agency, but there's about 4,000 employees. The way we accomplish that is we're very decentralized. We have 122 forecast offices across the United States, Alaska, Hawaii, Puerto Rico. Each one of those offices has a dedicated staff, like here in Lubbock, about 20 to 25 people. Most of those are meteorologists, but we also have IT people and we have electronics technicians. We have a lot of equipment that needs to be maintained and ready for use 24 hours a day, like the Doppler radar. Mission of the National Weather Service is the protection of life and property and the enhancement of the national economy through accurate weather prediction. And that's really what we're trying to do all the time, besides the routine forecasts, watches and warnings that we issue. Again, at all these 122 offices across the country, we are constantly working with local media out in the communities, out in the small communities. We meet with emergency managers, first responders, school administrators, hospital administrators, always trying to help communities prepare for the impacts of hazardous weather. It's a common question for meteorologists out here to get asked, why is it so hard to predict the weather here? Yeah, the weather is highly changeable out here on the high plains. This is one of the reasons I love the weather out here so much, why it's fun, why it's interesting to be a meteorologist out here, because the weather changes so dramatically. I think my favorite days are those days where we have snow and cold in the forecast for tomorrow. We say the high tomorrow is going to be 30 and we're going to get five inches of snow, but right now it's 75 degrees and people think that we've just lost it, even though it happens all the time. Some of the most impressive weather that occurs out here, but it really goes back to the pattern. We get a lot of severe weather out here, severe thunderstorms, tornadoes, hailstorms. We feel like we're pretty good at that here. We see it a lot. A lot of the meteorologists that tend to apply for positions here in Lubbock, they do so because they know the weather patterns that we have here. They want to be a part of that. Kind of works two ways. It kind of gives them 
their professional satisfaction because they get to come out here and they get to forecast severe weather, but it also works well for the taxpayers, the people we're trying to serve, because you have some of the best severe weather forecasters in the country working right here in West Texas, right here in Lubbock. So we feel like we're pretty good with the severe weather. Winter weather is probably more challenging to us. I think, number one, because we don't see it as much. Seems like there's precipitation mode issues or precipitation type issues a lot here, whereas in, you know, maybe in Amarillo, it, it's mainly snow. They don't have as quite as many uh, questions like we do. Is it going to be snow? Is it going to be sleet? Is it going to be rain? Is it going to be freezing rain? What's it going to be? What form the precipitation and dramatically impacts how much we're going to get as far as an accumulation standpoint. So for forecasting four inches of snow, then we get maybe an hour or two of sleet that we weren't expecting. Well, that really cuts into the snow amounts. And if you want to get people upset around here, just forecast too much snow. One big snowstorm we uh, got wrong many, many years ago, and we had to hear about that. I had to hear about that personally till about that big blizzard we had in 2015, which thankfully we did a really good job of forecasting. But prior to that, we forecasted a big snowstorm, I don't know, maybe 2007, 2008. Even though there was 14, 15 inches of snow in Littlefield here in Lubbock, it was mainly freezing rain and sleet, and we got like an inch of snow. What are some of the things that go into making that prediction? I'm curious about precipitation, thinking about, is it hail? Is it rain? Is it snow? Is it sleet? The type of precipitation that we receive down here at the surface where we live and that we care about is all determined by the temperature profile between the ground and the cloud. I don't think most people probably know this, but it turns out that most of our precipitation, due to the physics of precipitation processes, most of the precipitation we receive in this part of the world starts out almost always as snow. Now, there may be some exceptions to that in the summer months. Sometimes we get into more tropical atmospheres. Most of the time, that precipitation starts as snow. And most of the time, the temperature warms constantly from the cloud base to the ground. So by the time it gets down here, it's rain. But it's not always that simple. I'm thinking particularly in the winter, sometimes there's warm layers between the cloud in the ground so that that snow will melt into rain on the way down. When it gets closer to the ground, it may refreeze. You know, if the air is real cold at the ground, it may refreeze into sleet or sometimes into freezing rain. That's part of the problem why precipitation type is so difficult to forecast is because we have to have a really accurate model of the temperatures between the cloud base and the ground. And sometimes those are really good and we get the precipitation type right. Sometimes they're not so good. You've mentioned this idea of models and how these models have changed over time and also the importance of the data that goes into them. How has that evolved in the time that you've worked with the National Weather Service and where do you think the state of that technology is now? All that has improved by leaps and bounds since I started in the Weather Service in 1990. Back in 1990, we had an observation here in Lubbock. Reese Air Force Base was still open, so we had one there. Amarillo, Clovis, Childress, about 100 miles apart, and we'd get an observation once an hour. Now we have the West Texas Mesonet, part of the National Wind Institute at Texas Tech University. We have a much denser observational network, at least one per county. Here in the city, we've got four or five observation stations now, plus our official observation at Lubbock International Airport. And some of that data from the West Texas Mesonet, it updates every minute. So we went from a handful of observations 100 miles apart once an hour to observations 15 to 20 miles apart or less every minute if we want it. So from a data standpoint, there's no comparison. Data is paramount for getting accurate information out of models. The data that goes into models, the better that data is, the better the forecast will be. Models themselves have improved dramatically. We used to have just a couple forecast models we would use. They'd run twice a day. Now we have more models than we could possibly look at. 
Some of them run three or four times a day, our larger scale models, the models of maybe the whole world or maybe the Northern Hemisphere, maybe down to the continental United States. And then we have more higher resolution models that run every hour. And those are the models that are trying to predict thunderstorms, how they will evolve, or maybe how much snow we're going to get or the type of precipitation we're going to get. So all of these different models now, those have all been driven by computer technology, computer speeds. You have to have very fast computers and optimized models that can run in the time you need. You know, a model is just a bunch of mathematical equations that need to be solved. And so we use these really high-speed computers to do that, which fortunately we have an abundance of here in 2023. Looking at the forecasting out here, are there elements of man-made creation that have an influence on it? I'm thinking about maybe Lubbock being a heat island, for example. That's definitely true. On a clear, calm night, which is optimal cooling, so if you have no clouds, little to no wind, you will get the highest rate of cooling possible for a nighttime period, almost any time of the year, but especially in the summertime. The low temperature overnight will be much warmer in the city because of all the concrete, all the hard surfaces that absorb all that heat during the day. The airport may have a low of 65 or something like that. Here in the city, we might only get down to 68 or 70. And by extension, how do you think about climate change and the nature of your work? At the National Weather Service, we're tasked with forecasting the weather for the next seven days. So climate change doesn't really factor into what we do. That's the realm of climatologists, and that's really a whole different discipline. Have you seen weather patterns in Lubbock change since the time that you've been working here? That's a really good question. I don't think so. Right off the top of my head, we're approaching May and coming up here. And, you know, our traditional severe weather season around here is pretty much any time April 15th to June 15th. We feel like we could have severe weather outbreaks. Typically, it's May 1st through June 15th. We actually plan our schedules at work around that. We don't allow any leave hardly at all during that period just because we know we're going to be so busy. By the time you get to the middle part of June or so, that's pretty much over. I mean, it may last maybe another week or so, and we can have severe weather as late as July 4th or so. But in general, our big severe weather events, if they're going to occur, they're going to occur in that May 1st through June 15th timeframe. And I don't think that's really changed any, at least from a severe weather standpoint, since 1990. When it comes to winter weather, I don't really think that's changed a whole lot either here in the last 30 years. Our average snow has decreased a little bit. I think it was more around 10 inches in the 90s, and now maybe it's more like eight inches, so maybe a little less snow. But again, we have winters where we get a good amount of snow, and other winters we get zero, and that hasn't really changed, you know, at least anecdotally. That's kind of my uh, view of it anyway. And we'll be right back with Justin to continue our conversation on Around Town on 89.1. Welcome back to Around Town. Our guest today is Justin Weaver, the meteorologist in charge for the National Weather Service's Lubbock office. Severe weather season is coming up. How does the National Weather Service prepare for that? And how should a typical person prepare for that? We have planning meetings and we're constantly refining our techniques and our schedules and our training officer, just making sure we're using all the latest techniques to identify severe weather signatures, tornadic signatures. We work with the emergency management here in the city of Lubbock and all the emergency managers and all of our surrounding communities to make sure they're prepared. We have a cadre of meteorologists that work their eight-hour shifts and then they'll head out into the communities 
communities and they'll conduct spotter training for our spotter teams in our smaller communities. We're out there educating them of what to look for, what to report to us. So it's kind of an ongoing process for the public. The very best thing they can do is to be prepared for it. There's a lot of hazards, of course. There's lightning and there's hail and there's high winds. But of course, the big potential mass casualty event is another tornado like we had again on May 11, 1970. So know what to do if a tornado was approaching your area. Have several ways to get tornado warnings. Know where you would go in your home or your place of work. You want to have that planned out beforehand. Best places are, of course, below ground if you have a basement. Storm shelter. Texas Tech developed the framework for above ground tornado shelters. Those are very, very safe. If you don't have a basement or an above ground tornado shelter, the best place to go is an interior room, a small interior room. No windows, obviously. Put as many walls between you and the outside as possible. Tornadoes destroy structures from the top down and from the outside in. Closets are great. Bathrooms are great. Pantries, things like that. Very small rooms. Wear a helmet if you have one. Almost all tornado fatalities are from head trauma, from wind blowing debris. It's not the wind that kills you. It's what the wind is blowing that kills you. Common everyday objects blown at 100 to 125 miles per hour will kill you if they hit you in the head. That's the biggest problem with tornadoes. When you have your designated shelter, it's good to have shoes in those shelters. We see that a lot with tornado victims. They survive the tornado. They come out, their home's destroyed. They don't have shoes on. So their feet obviously can get cut up very badly in the glass and all the debris from a a destroyed home. Lubbock recently installed tornado sirens. What is the benefit of having a multi-layered approach to warning systems? A multi-layered approach is exactly what you want, both from the community standpoint to warn the citizens and also on the receiving end. You want to have multiple ways to receive tornado warnings because some of those methodologies will fail in a disaster. We see that time and time again. The first thing that fails in a big tornado are communications. Everybody thinks they're going to get their warning on their cell phone. Those are called wireless emergency alerts. That was a joint effort between the National Weather Service and the cellular phone companies. The best advancement in warning the public that we've seen in many, many years years, but sometimes the cell phone networks fail. And if the cell phone network fails, you will not get your wireless emergency alert. So you have to have other ways to get those warnings like weather radio, sirens. A lot of times those are the methodologies that work in disasters, not the newer technologies. It all depends on where the tornado develops. There's lots of variables there. Maybe a tornado develops and we can see it coming for miles. In that case, we'll have a good warning out and you probably get that warning on your cell phone. You'll probably get that wireless emergency alert if you have a cell phone. You know, not everybody has a cell phone. A lot of people think can't believe that, but it's true. It's absolutely true. Not everybody has a cell phone. But if the tornado develops right in the city, worst case scenario where it develops over the southwest Lubbock and then moves northeast across the entire city, if we're talking about Lubbock, well, then you might not get the warning in the way you hope to get it. So that's why we need multiple ways to warn people. We need sirens, local media, weather radios, social media. We need multiple ways. Can you speak to an example where sirens played a role in a city's response? I was part of a service assessment team following the devastating Joplin, Missouri tornado in 2011. That was the first tornado to kill over 100 people since the Flint, Michigan tornado all the way back in 1953. In fact, there was a lot of meteorologists that thought we would never see a single tornado kill over 100 people again, and that was shattered at Joplin back in 2011. We interviewed slightly over 100 citizens of Joplin following that disaster. They had a robust siren system there in Joplin that worked during the tornado. They may disagree with this, but we felt like after talking with the residents that they tested the sirens too much, number one. I think they tested them every week. Their activation policy was pretty liberal. Bottom line was the folks in the city of Joplin heard the sirens a lot. 
on the day of the tornado, which was a Sunday afternoon, it was high school graduation that day, a lot of people in town. When they activated the sirens for the first time that day, residents didn't tend to react to it. And we heard that from many people. You know, not everybody. The sirens go off all the time and nothing ever happens. That was the Joplin emergency management protocol at the time was to activate the sirens once and that's it. But in this case, they activated the sirens with the warning and then a big tornado developed. So when they knew that there was a big tornado that was about to impact the city, they activated the sirens again. And I had many residents tell me that when they heard those sirens for the second time, they knew something was wrong and they sought shelter. I want to ask a little bit about misconceptions, myths in weather forecasting. A lot of people say that people in the weather only predict things about 50% right. If I had a dollar for every time somebody told me, you know, what do you do? I'm a meteorologist. Oh boy, I wish I could get paid for being right 50% of the time. Yes, we are right way more than 50% of the time, especially if you're talking about the weather for like 24 hours for tomorrow. Temperature forecast, especially if you give us a little leeway, you know, a couple degrees on either side of our expected high temperature, the forecast is right way over 90% of the time for the next day. Now that predictability decreases with increasing time. We are right way more than 50% of the time. Clear days count is what I like to tell people. Some folks think it's only when we predict rain and we're wrong. The inclement weather is the more difficult part of the forecast to get correct. And of course, it's the most impactful. So that's what people really pay attention to. When we say it's going to be sunny and the high is going to be 85, that counts as an accurate forecast. A lot of people forget that. When somebody hears that there's a, say, 50% chance of rain, what does that mean? If we forecast that 10 times for your location, it should rain five out of those 10 times at your location. That's what that means in a broader sense. Technically, how we come up with that number is we estimate that precipitation will develop and we multiply that by what we think the aerial coverage of that precipitation will be if it does develop. So for instance, if we think there is a 50% chance that rain will actually develop, So that's 0.5. If rain does develop, it'll cover about half the area. That's another 0.5. So it's 0.5 times 0.5, which is equal to 0.25. In that scenario, that would be a 25% chance of precipitation. How should people be thinking about thunder and lightning when it's appropriate to go inside? If you can hear thunder, you're at risk of being struck by lightning. And we all play these games, right? We all do that. We all stay outside way too long. Little league, soccer, they all tend to stay out way too long when thunderstorms are approaching. It's very, very dangerous. Lightning, on average, kills more people every year than tornadoes do. You just don't hear about it as much because it's usually one fatality here, two fatalities there, whereas in some unfortunate situations, tornadoes may kill 20, 30 people, so they're big headlines. The best thing you can do when thunderstorms are approaching is to just go inside. You are significantly reducing your risk of bad things happening to you if you just go inside. And I mean really inside, four walls and a roof, not the concession stand at Little League. And from thunderstorms, you're perfectly safe in a vehicle as well. From lightning and things like that, you're not necessarily safe from tornadoes in a vehicle. We're just talking lightning mainly. You need to get inside and you typically need to get inside probably before you think you should. For the listener out there who is interested in becoming a meteorologist and maybe even working for the National Weather Service, what advice do you have for them? It's been a wonderful career. I've never regretted it one moment of my life. It's what I've always wanted to do. It's different every day. Get to work with really intelligent people. You get to feel like you're making a difference because you work with the communities, you work with emergency managers. You're helping people make decisions every day of the week. And I don't think there's really more satisfaction than that to me than helping people make good decisions when it comes to weather. If you're a young person interested in meteorology, it's not an easy major. It's a lot of math. It's a lot of physics, chemistry, computer science, all those fun topics. You got to be pretty good at all of them. You have to be a really good communicator as well. You have to have a pretty well-rounded academic resume. Justin, that's all the time we have today. Thanks so much for coming on. Thank you very much for having me. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. 
Thanks for listening to Around Town. I'm your host, Nick Berkfeld. This show was produced by Chuck Luck. Our guest today was Justin Weaver, the meteorologist in charge for the National Weather Service's Lubbock office. Join us next Friday morning at 9 a.m. on 89.1. For more information on Around Town, visit ttupublicmedia.org.